0: I never told no one that, my whole life I've been holding back, every time I load my gun up so I can shoot for the star. I hear a voice like, who do you think you are, Negative. All right, everybody, another day, another dollar, one of my favorite, well, it is my favorite podcast, I'm being biased, it's my own podcast, two years strong, tomorrow marks two years of what if it did work, and have a guess that I'd really like to welcome Jeff Paikin to the podcast, CEO of Outcome Partners, a consultant firm focused on boosting profits for businesses. For example, his team of experts can cut up business costs a hundred percent on contingency, meaning Outcome Partners doesn't get paid until after savings are delivered, especially the way the economy is going, that sounds like an ideal situation. Right now, a lot of companies need to boost profits. So this is a very timely topic. Separately, we'll be exploring Jeff's digital nomad life. Currently, he's living in Medellin. You see, you can tell I'm Colombian, not Medellin, like what a lot of Americans call it. Colombia, pursuing his goals of financial time and location freedom. One thing I really like about Jeff's story is that he built Alchem Partners to travel with him. Where he goes, it goes without slowing down. Without further ado, I'd like for you to jump in. How's it going, Jeff?
1: It's going incredible. How are you doing today, Omar?
0: Doing amazing. I'm living the dream. I, I get the opportunity of of meet CEO, meeting CEOs, founders, like-minded people. So what brought you to, out of all places,
1: Medellin, Colombia? Well, first off, I just love that you pronounce it correctly because I deal with so many Americans, or as locals say, gringos, uh, who can't pronounce it correctly, and they misspell Columbia as well, like it's the uh, city in Ohio,
0: like the university. <laughs> it, it, it's like no, Columbia is that that university that wouldn't uh, would only allow me to tour it, you know, if I took a tour. But you know, in New York City, yes, that or it's
1: Columbia named after Christopher Columbus. Well, fantastic! And to answer your question, what brought me to Colombia was uh, five different attributes that I've been looking for in a kind of home or a destination that I like to live in, and those five are physical safety, food supply chain safety, traditional culture, economics, and climate. And Medellin, Colombia, has all five, so I absolutely love it here. I recently received my nomad visa, so I'll be here through May of 2025. I'm so excited!
0: Now, an origin story you're originally from...
1: I'm I'm an American, but my parents are from the former Soviet Union. So immigrant son of of immigrants from Soviet Union. I'm very proud of that fact. Really? Uh, What part? Well, just the fact that uh, as Jews, my parents were very much second-class citizens in the former Soviet Union. And so coming to the United States, the land of the free really meant land of the free for them. And so They've been able to give me an amazing life, and uh, I've hopefully taken full advantage of it by going to great schools, getting great jobs, and now starting a great business.
0: So they came for religious reasons, because I I know most, most people don't even follow their own history here, but just by watching Fiddler on the Roof, Jews were persecuted and Jews were pretty much kicked out of moscow kicked out of russia kicked out or 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 treated even worse than well all their citizens were treated pretty poorly but even worse than the, the common person there
1: yeah it's it's kind of scary to see you know socialism marxism communism rise in the united states when you know my parents had a full you know front row seat to uh living in the the aftermath of it so um you know I'm kind of glad that folks like yourself and others out there that believe in capitalism and believe that that gives true freedom to individuals um, are, are, are able to thrive. And uh, hopefully your your listeners uh, are doing the exact same thing and appreciate America for what it is. It's, it's, it's a growing
0: concern. People don't, I mean, people have their head buried in the sand, but just uh, beginning of the year, I took my girls to Atlanta to, well, no, it, it was late December to Georgia to Atlanta to watch the SEC championship game, LSU versus Georgia. And they were advertising Georgia State University to take a beginner's uh, course on communism and the benefits of communism. And it wasn't an accredited course. It seemed like it was more like a club. Hey, let's indoctrinate here. Let's let you drink the Kool-Aid. Let's you understand that everybody's separate, everybody's not separate, everybody's equal, you know, rainbows and unicorns. And my daughters both showed me that. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's that's crazy that one that they advertised something like that. And I'm I'm sure it was only one or two people showed up for the meeting. And have you ever wondered why this younger generation is just thrilled with communism and socialism?
1: Well, when your teachers are basically raising the kids because parents have to work their full-time jobs, if not two or three jobs to cover costs in America, I'm not surprised that those that can't have kids, you know, convert yours or indoctrinate yours. And so I think that COVID was actually, there was one blessing to COVID, which was a lot of parents walked by the Zoom of what was going on in the classrooms for a long time in, in kids' classes. And they started to see that it was more of an indoctrination versus an education program going on in our public school system and sometimes in our private school system as well. So uh I'm not surprised actually by that club or a class being introduced. Um for me, it's just kind of the the second wave of the evolution where hey, these kids were already used to that from you know K through twelve and now they're just gonna get it in college too.
0: Yeah. Uh our our daughters will soon be senior and sophomore, but the reason why we put them in Catholic and the private schools was at an early age, they started at, at a rated school. And one of their best friends was from Venezuela. So socialist and the parents, we, we invited them over a couple of times and it was just like, right, Just tell me about the benefits of, of socialism, why they love it. And uh, they were, Guy was our pool cleaner which congratulations you're a hard worker but when he was saying all this i'm like oh my gosh is this the stuff that you know is he the only one or and it, it was just a knee jerk because at the same time they wanted the the public school teachers were were teaching them about how the the governor's evil and you know all all these things and just pushing their political views which in general I mean, just do your job, uh, you know. I'm, I'm not, and, and neither one of us we're a hundred percent capitalist. My ex wife was was from Cuba, so she's probably more more capitalist than than most. But yeah, it's it's crazy how everybody young just wants to you know believe in the Bernie Sanders. Everybody, let's make hundred k. And it, it, it's so false. I mean, can I can't name you any really thriving places where socialism is is just like booming?
1: Even yeah, just, that's what I that's what I always right. ask somebody is tell me one place that it's worked out.
0: You know, I can, I can name
1: you. I can name you two dozen where capitalism's worked out to help the lower and, and, and middle class rise, you know, rise economic classes, even in a class system like India or in China. But you know, uh, when capitalism is introduced, people rise in the economy and, and they bring usually on average five to 10 people with them, whether it's family or friends or the neighborhood or the community or the people that they buy other services from. The whole economy rises with capitalism. The whole economy falls with socialism. And so that's why, just like you, I just always ask, tell me one place where it's worked out over time that we are just saying, wow, isn't that something that we should all be pursuing?
0: Well, and it's crazy because everybody's like, well, well what about in Europe? And I, Europe has like no middle class. I mean, I've, I've been in Europe since high school, uh, recently, and there's no middle class. I, either you have a lot of money or you're just struggling. So that's even a poor example. So people always, well, what, what about the northern the northern countries? I'm like, well, you know, they're small. And, and it's not like
1: right, so yeah. I mean, at, at, and I misused the word there, but basically, you know, everyone who uses that as the example of like, okay, well, we should compare ourselves to them. Okay, so we should compare ourselves to you know, if we're not going to see if if we want to see uh how tribalism or uh, how Marxism really works. And again, I'm not using those as the examples, but these are groups that essentially. Uh, say that you should identify and you should be placing people into individual groups. If you look at the Nordic countries, so you're saying that a predominantly white culture with a predominantly uniform, you know, religious belief um, that pursues capitalism actually is delivering better results. Like that's a scary thing to to say, but it's what the facts show. Instead, of what I like to say is that when you remove regulation, you remove government uh, oversight and other people's opinions on you, and everyone just leaves you alone. And you basically say the incentive is that if you want to earn, you can earn. Overall, you see societies thrive in those situations. But, you know, at the end of the day, this traditional culture that I seek outside of the United States, unfortunately, because it's not in the United States anymore, is one of the reasons why that brought me to Medellin, Colombia, right? Is because they are a, you know, a thriving church or, you know, Catholic type of society. And even though I'm Jewish, I can actually celebrate with, you know, the Chabad house that's here and, And and celebrate my religion as freely down here as I do in the United States. So for me, it's just a very positive experience to find people who are very just generous and loving and kind in the streets and open arms when you walk off the, you know, the plane from the United States to here.
0: Now, was there any knee jerk with like friends, family when you told them that you're, yeah. <laughs> you're in <Columbia. laughs>
1: Oh, yeah. And I mean, like, the the, the main one was that, like, hey, we've we watched Narcos. Isn't the, isn't it unsafe? Isn't it, you know, a cartel, you know, frenzy down there? And, you know, what I had to tell them is number one on my list of places I look for is physical safety. So if I've come down here and I've lived here for now over a year, right, I've been here for over a year, are you not getting the va- – like, are you not seeing that clearly – it's checked that box for me, so that's kind of a, a funny reaction. But yes, all the way in the beginning, you know, my parents, especially my older brother, um, friends of mine were just like Medellin, Colombia. I mean, come on, they literally have Netflix shows about how dangerous it is there, and it's it, it, it's co- the complete opposite. As long as you live, like I said, a very virtuous life, right? I live between the hours of five thirty a.m. and nine p.m. every day, so I'm not dealing with any riffraff.
0: Well, well, I always snicker, anyways, because if if you think about it. We can pick and choose cities here where, I mean, anywhere on the West Coast from Seattle, Portland, California, Chicago, you know, you don't see anybody saying you're, you're visiting there. You're going there. I mean, the, the murder rates are are high throughout this country. It, it, They're atrocious. It, right. It depends on your element, too, because, I mean, I don't I wouldn't fear for my life in Chicago because, you know, if I went to Chicago, if I went to SoCal or these places, it it would it would be like where, you know, the Marriott and the Hyatt and the tourist attractions. And it's the same anywhere in the world. There's danger if you go find it. And if you go to the, you know, the, the sketchy areas of town anywhere.
1: Yeah. And again, um, don't know how much you want to keep talking about these topics versus business. Happy to keep going. But I grew We're up 30 years in everything. Chicago. <laughs> All right. Well, I love that. But I grew up for 30 years in Chicago. I thought it was better than any city in the United States. I've lived in New York, lived in San Francisco, lived in Boston, Miami, Dallas for periods of time. And I always found my way back to Chicago. And the reason for it was that it was the charming New York, as I always told people, it was the modest New York where someone's still going to open the door and people still say please and thank you. And in early 2020, uh, when the governor basically started saying he was going to shut down uh, Chicago and in Illinois, J.B. Pritzker, uh, I said, nope, that's not going to happen. So I literally grabbed my go bag, uh, used that for its non-intended purpose and five minutes later, I was on my way to the airport to O'Hare to move to Scottsdale, Arizona for a period, you know, for a period of time before I'd started checking out other places like Puerto Rico and Mexico City and now Medellin, Colombia. So, yeah, totally agree with you. Chicago's a lost cause. I don't I think it'll take them 10 to 20 years to recover from what the current administration's have all done. Mayor to the governor and everybody in between.
0: Well, speaking of Corona covid whatever you want to call it donald trump calls it the chinese flu people used it for their own political agenda
1: oh 100 it was the first time that all governments around the world agreed to lock their people up i mean it was the most uh you know uh it was the most synchronized um uh, uh, way for for governments basically to do a test on society and see how much we would put up with uh, and 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 we put up with it for two years as a general society, even a person like me who said absolutely not no thank you to it. I still had to deal with the regulations and parameters and policies that they put in place for people who just signed up and said yes we're we're afraid and we will do whatever you say
0: it It's funny though you never hear an apology from from those that were on social media and those that were Beating down the, the drum that we have to stay indoors, we have to be locked up until there's a cure. And
1: yeah, yeah. I, I think that that is actually the cause of my concern in politics today. Um, it has nothing to do with what you choose to do and what you choose to believe in. Uh, you know, on the right side, what they're calling conspiracies on the left side, what they're, you know, what the right might call, you know, um, the matrix, you know, just being downloaded into the matrix, whatever it is, basically the, the only thing that I think that is really like separating our society today from 20 or 30 years ago was accountability. Right. So Mm -hmm. do you feel accountable to at least speak up when you were wrong and just saying I was wrong? And if somebody asks you an opinion and you don't have the answer, just to simply say, I don't know, because that's a form of accountability, which no one is willing to do today and just say, I don't know. Uh, you know, I would like to research it a little bit more before I get back to you. These, these are all things that were very normal ways of dealing with unknowns or making mistakes 20, 30 years ago. And today you have nobody who apologizes for making a mistake, let alone they double down and, and either call you a liar or they just say that, no, it's still right. You know, <laughs> Covid is still out there, and we see people who are still driving in cars with masks on by themselves, right? Oh, all
0: the time, brother, all the time. That that gets me. I I just have to laugh because it, it it doesn't matter what your political views or social views. Literally, it says it's not an airborne disease. So then, why would you be wearing it if you're by yourself in a car or by
1: yourself? walking and there's nobody around you why would you wear a mask and it's well like- so so one thing that i talk about with a couple of my other fellow business owner friends who are on the opposite side of my opinion and again i try to listen to them i pressure test to the limit that you can without you know putting someone into a um into a position where they feel like they need to fight or flight but basically i just say like what COVID came down to what a lot of these um concerning topics that we have recently, whether you're talking about, you know, the trans agenda in sports, or whatever might be in our schools, you know, wherever you're on that side of opinion, it's really coming down to liberty versus the common good, right? And either you're a person who believes in the common good. And so you're going to go along with everything that you believe is, you know, putting you on the quote, unquote, right side of history by going with the flow of everyone else, or there's going to be the liberty mindset. And again, these aren't uh, diametrically opposed it's just where do you emphasize your belief system but if you believe in liberty where you believe in live and let live you know but i'm an individual that you know our government should run on we are we the people is where it gets started from and that we have the right to um you know life liberty and the pursuit of happiness you know those aren't diametrically opposed people who are for the common good and for liberty but where you emphasize is what you usually go along with first is what I usually say to people. So if you believe that COVID was going to be a huge health scare and all these things, you're going to go with the common good along with everybody versus where you see everyone going along with the common good and how government was responding to it. If you're a person who leaned more towards liberty and that you have the right to dictate you know, what's put into your body, all of those things, then you may have pushed back against that initially because that's just where you lean more towards. And so I just see a lot of you know those di- You know those factors, kind of coming into everyday conversation. When, frankly, the United States is a meritocracy-based culture, and what I really think is happening because people are being put into these camps is that we're losing that meritocracy culture. Whether you have a job or you start a business or you're in school, we're just losing it, and instead, you know, um, leaning more towards the common good. You know, okay, it's racist to say that two plus two equals four. So, you know, don't say that and don't learn math. It's it's ridiculous stuff like that, that that go to the extremes. And I could give the 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 right side argument for what you know for craziness as well.
0: Now your corporation, outcome partners, was that all designed by default because of 2020?
1: So it's interesting that you asked that question. I um uh I was working for a very large consulting firm uh at the time that I quit my job and some of the things that were starting to rise on my head was um forced training on wokeness things like uh what they were labeling as unconscious bias training. I'm very bi. I, I'm very conscious of all of my biases. I don't I don't need somebody to tell me that I that I haven't consciously I where I'm biased uh at all. And so um I found that that was very frustrating or annoying, but um really the the reason why I launched my business was because I just had a bad boss at work. And in a 700,000 person organization, I wasn't able to change groups away from this person. I mean, they were going to affect my trajectory. I was getting promoted every two to three years when the average promotion cycle was four to five. Um, and so, you know, I was on the fast track path to partner. And then this individual kind of stepped in the way and I wasn't able to get around this individual. And I said, you know what? I have, I've learned enough. I know how to go make money. Uh, I know how to keep myself accountable for making that type of money and, and helping others in this world. Uh, I'm going to quit my job. First time I took no paycheck in 20 years, right? Since I started working at 13 years old at a Dairy Queen pushing a mop. And uh, and uh, I just quit. And But within 48 hours, I'd reached out to 500 of my closest friends in private equity, venture capital, family offices, family-run businesses, and simply offered you know 90 minutes to two hours of my time to help them think through how they were either thriving during COVID or barely surviving. And if I could help connect them with somebody who could solve their problems. And within 48 hours, I had my first eight clients. Within my first six months, I had 120 clients. And so it kind of just was more happenstance than, than designed.
0: Well, congratulations. Cause I, I, I have a similar trajectory I graduated with a couple of degrees in journals. And I realized, man, I knew more than my bosses. My bosses were horrible. What my my first boss thought everybody that lived in Miami, he was a big Miami Vice fan, and he thought I lived in the mansion. He thought you know we we were all driving Lambos, and he kept on telling me you know quit this eighteen thousand dollar a year job. Well, I'm sorry, that was my second job, fifteen thousand dollar a year job salary and this isn't 1950, this was like 1995 shit pay to go back home to my mansion. And I'm like, I'm like thinking to myself, I'm like, is this guy delusional? If I was, if my family was wealthy, do you think I'd be like, you know, working below minimum wage? But that's great because you know, so many people instead of just believing in themselves and taking that leap and saying, I I can be an entrepreneur. You know, they they always feel like they need the
1: floaties of working for corporate America, which well it's it's, it's interesting you bring that up because it was the biggest uh, risk that I took and it had nothing to do with income or anything like this. As we said at the beginning of the call, my parents were from the former Soviet Union. They 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 left. You know, my father came to this country, worked on a manufacturing floor. You know, uh, his whole career until he was able to retire on his own money. You know, he's not. You know, like he's he, he's self sufficient with my mother, and um, very proud of that fact, and I'm very proud of him for it. Um, but you know, for him, you know, going to the right school, you know, and I, I went from a great high school in the United States at the time, Niles North High School in in Chicago, which was I think top twenty in in the country uh, for public schools, where my dad and my mom saved every penny they could to you know get us into the right school systems for my three brothers, for myself and my two brothers, and um, and then from there, go to Northwestern, and I worked. You know, went to school during the evenings, and I worked during the day. You know, in in financial services, and then a little bit in private equity. And then when I graduated, I got this great job at a you know at this major consulting firm, uh, and I was getting promoted on the fast track at every level, right? And and my name was known. I I quit twice, and people called me to come back. Where in an organization like that, they really don't do that at all. So. Um, I, I had a very good trajectory, very good life. And the biggest concern I had when I quit my job was disappointing my father, right? That, that all of this hard work and this kind of, it was almost like my success or my stability in a corporate job in America, getting six figures was a big checkbox for him that all the sacrifices were worth it. And so that was the biggest concern or fear I had when I was quitting my job was not that I was going to be successful or pay my bills or not but was i letting my dad down a little bit you know and so i'm i'm glad to hear you know like i'm glad to say today that my father is you know very proud he's happy that i'm living not only financial freedom and time freedom but location freedom which is very important to me uh and and that we we speak every week so you know i'm i'm very proud of that
0: was was there any <laughs> blow blot, knee-jerk reaction did he tell you why did you quit this is the american dream or did was he i have faith in you jeff i know you're a smart guy you have a degree from northwestern i trust your instincts
1: um it was easy for me to again by the second day i had eight clients i was you know uh back up you know at least to the to the low five figures, um, you know, monthly. So, you know, for, for, for him, when I told him, Hey, I quit, but Oh, by the way, I've replaced the income. (laughs) It was a little bit less of a knee-jerk reaction, but I, I definitely got that suck in breath from him that like did you did you go and find a job before you quit your job you know very much that immigrant mindset which I love of course which is like never quit something that if you don't have something already lined up the papers are signed maybe they already gave you a signing bonus you know all that well and it it was
0: I mean it shows you had the talent you know literally having a bad boss in the grand scheme of things, you know that that saying, it, "Life doesn't happen to you; it happens for you," because you 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 weren't ever thinking, "Hey, I'm leaving here." Right? It it, it was having this this boss doing having the woke classes, the diversity training, and all that
1: that was pushing you out the door per se. Yeah, I mean, I I would 100 percent say that percent say that i loved my job i loved the company that i worked for regardless of the you know the little bit of hr training but i think we all complain about any type of hr training that we have to take uh because it's so misaligned to our day-to-day actual work that we do um i think that hr uh, needs a, a refresh in in corporate america in general but i loved my company and I'll, I'll i'll indicate that i worked at accenture uh i was on the fast track there i was in the strategy group i was solving problems that uh you know uh, blue sky opportunities and, and turnarounds and restructurings and doing really cool work, both organically and inorganically, meaning with the resources that they have available, but as well as mergers and acquisitions. And I was dealing strictly with the board of directors, the C-suite and their direct reports at Fortune 500 and very major private equity firms. So for me, I was having a blast working the corporate job and being known by it and building a reputation Um, but this is, this is where big corporations kind of sometimes miss the mark and they lose great people who really love the brand and want to carry the brand forward when they allow certain individuals to rise who have, uh, and I hate using this word because it's been misused in a different way, but a toxic personality, right? Someone who, who leeches from their subordinate sales or basically try to keep people down simply because they have the opportunity to kind of lift and surpass the boss and, um, and they don't want to be that really great mentor. And I think that every great mentor always wants their mentee to surpass them in, in every way possible, right? And so when you put leaders in place that don't do that, you actually have the reverse effect where these high-performing individuals leave companies, and they are that future future businesses' uh, leadership or at least higher management.
0: Now, Jeff, your, co- your corporation is based on boosting profits by cutting costs cutting the fat now clearly there must have been I'm, th- this is the time to thrive right when the economy no nobody really knows what direction it, it's going in yeah the the stock market for now is has, has propped up but overall I think a lot of uncertainty you, we have inflation we have Lead, well, leadership. I'll just say we have leadership that, that's out there. It, it, is is this what you want for your business or it really doesn't matter? Every business needs to, especially corporate America, needs to start cutting back.
1: Well, so I would simply say that uh, I used to do this work with Accenture for our clients. Uh, it was called ZBB, Zero Based Budgeting. Uh, but a number of different other things that that I did for them under different names. But essentially, when I quit my job and I was talking to a lot of the, you know, now my clients, but, you know, in the past, just friends of mine, when I launched Outcome Partners, um, they were either thriving extremely well, like, let's say, you know, grocery apps thrived during COVID because uh, everyone was scared to go outside. So they started just having delivery grocery come to their house. And so... One of the companies I was helping out, they went from 5,000 monthly users to 50,000 monthly users in a 60-day period. And so you know they 10x in 60 days. And when you don't have the infrastructure in place to support that, all of a sudden, your reputation gets hit by your inability to keep up with all of customer demand, right? Because you just don't have the people in place to respond to all the needs. So helping a company like that Cut costs on their merchant processing fees, um, so that they could reinvest that into hiring more staff or, um, uh, you know, more technology stack in their, in their infrastructure was a, seen as a net benefit. Similarly, a lot of my other clients that were barely surviving before COVID hit, and then they were doing even worse when COVID hit, like manufacturing companies, they didn't have protocols in place for six feet, you know, six foot distance between workers and shifts and contact tracing. And so for a small, medium sized business, um, you know, anything under $2 billion it would kind of fit under that in my, in my definition of SMB, um, that, you know, they were struggling. And so to be able to find, you know, $50,000 to invest in plastic screens and all those things to put on the manufacturing floor so they can quote unquote meet expectations or regulations in their, you know, respective states or counties was really helpful. You know, now that's changing a little bit to your question for today's type of recession is we're is rather in it or about to enter it in a worse way depending on how you want to see it where everyone for the last 3 or 4 years has had easy cash low interest rates high venture capital high private equity um you know cheap money essentially and while everyone says that you should be profitable they weren't really re- they weren't really enforcing it from the board or the c-suite perspective so now a lot of those conversations that i've had for the last 2 3 years i think in one day we have like 15 phone calls with CEOs and COOs that basically said, "Hey, we remember talking to you about 6 to 12 months ago. You know, you said you can make, you know, you could help us cut costs in 60 days or less. Can we get going today?" And the answer was, "Yes, absolutely. Let's just get going." And the cool part is is that a lot of the work that I do is industry agnostic because at Outcome Partners, basically we boost profitability by renegotiating your everyday bills in a business. The bills that everyone kind of needs. So, these are things like your merchant processing fees every time that someone swipes a credit card at your business or online with your business, uh, your utility bills, your telecom bills, your internet bill, but also your payroll processing. So if you work with ADP or Paylocity to pay your people, you may be overpaying on the processing fees for that. You know, and then you get into shipping, and there's four different ways that you can start saving money on shipping, from small parcel refunds uh, to renegotiating contracts to getting better. Uh, LTL and FTL rates or international freight, meaning over air and overseas. And so we get to look at 20 plus different areas to help any business, regardless of what industry they're in, look for cost savings and hopefully reinvest that capital for growth right in the future.
0: Now, there must have been some leap of faith, though, because most people, I mean, you did the ultimate scale. You're you're literally in another country I mean it, it's it's winter where you're at while it, it's it's summer here. Yeah,
1: yeah it was it, really hot today, you know. <laughs> 75, 80 degrees. It was very hot.
0: <laughs> but but you know most people are slaves to their business. They don't, they're not entrepreneurs, they're not business owners. You are the ultimate business owner because literally you can go anywhere and your your company would still be operational, whether it's jean or if you wanted, I, I know you have a trip coming up to Europe, but if you wanted to go hang out in Europe
1: for a month, six or weeks, Thailand in February is the plan for a month, exactly. just 12 hour, like yeah, 12 hour difference. Yeah, now, yeah. So I built so I yeah, built up the partners ahead. to do that, right? And I know that that was something that you really liked about our you know initial conversation together. You're like, wait a second, so if you go to Thailand, you know, do you have to now start taking phone calls? From seven PM in Thailand till seven AM, you know something like that. If you're working a twelve hour day, and again, I choose my hours. I love to work, so you know for me it's fine. But no, I I, I built Outcome Partners. As soon as I close those eight clients, I said, okay, stop. Like, we now have product market fit. People want what I'm willing to help them sell, right? Or what I'm selling to them, they want it. Uh, the reason for it is that it's 100% on contingency, meaning nobody pays me until after I deliver the results. So it's a very simple business model. So I said, okay, if I have this great offer where people don't pay me until after I deliver results, how can I create a business from the ground up that allows me to get financial time and most especially location freedom, which is what you talk about, which is if I went to Thailand, I can still wake up at 5:30 like the way that I like to do it here and go to sleep by 9 pm and the business is still growing. And the way that I've done that, essentially, is that I looked at the basic structure of all businesses, which is prospecting, sales, which is considered the closing effect, and then fulfillment. And I said, which, if any of these pieces, do I actually have to do myself, right? And so I started with fulfillment. This is going to take the most time. And I said, can I find people who do an equal quality level, if not better than me, of delivering the actual product or service that I am selling them? And the answer was that there are people who are doing better than me. And so let me go and work with them. Let me partner with them. They probably struggle on the thing that I'm probably great at, which is prospecting and closing. right? So that's the first thing that I did. And so now I don't have to go and deliver any of the work. I just have to put it in the hands of people I trust. I'm still involved from an account management perspective, making sure that if there's any problems, I'm always a a point of contact for folks. But for the main part, they're dealing with this other group this other group that has already a scaled business you know hundreds of people in some cases the second piece was closing the sale do i need to be participating in that and 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 prospecting the leads and so that's the piece that i actually get the most fun from but i'm i've i also found referral partners and i have 80 referral partners in the outcome network who send deals to me every single day and at 5:30 i wake up i check my email i see all the leads And I connect them with sell. If they can't close a sale themselves, then I respond back to that introductory email. And I just set up a sales call with me and I'll go close that deal. And 80 to 100% of the time, I'm usually successful in moving it to the next stage, right? Which is the fulfillment side. So in most cases, I would say 80% of, of the time, prospects are sent to me through the referral network. I redirect them to the fulfillment partner that can close them themselves. And I actually don't have to make the sale. 20% of the time, I'm sending them my Calendly. I'm having a phone call with them. And I'm choosing the hours that I'm willing to have a phone call on that Calendly link. So it also restricts me not working hours that I don't want to work. So this allows me to move my business with me, regardless of I'm living in Mexico City, the way that I was in March, to Laguna Beach, California for a few weeks in April, to now here in Medellin, Colombia since May.
0: Congratulations! Uh, that's pretty much why I wrote my second book about vacation CEO is. Oh, be- I love that. Yeah, yeah. It, it it was given to me a nickname because when I was married, uh, people never know. Look at the A through the X, the the uh, the process of actually working. They only see the the final product, the results. And yeah, the results. And and you know, I outsourced my weaknesses. I, I worked on what I was great at, and I I became a leader. And I hired the right people. So I, I I we could go on you know on a Mediterranean cruise. We we could go to the Amalfi Coast or Hawaii or whatnot. And everybody's like, because everybody has that you know that belief that you know, you're, you're trapped in that business. Your, your business can't, th- if, well, you've heard this cliche, if you're not running your business, someone else is, and, and it's the furthest, it, it, it's just funny because that, that's why I tell people, do you own a business or does the business own you? And, and you know, 90% of the time people, people are trapped. People can't, don't have you, the resources, or, or they don't have the faith in themselves or in the faith in others that that they can go to Europe, that they can go to Thailand, that they can go to Laguna Beach, which well, I, I, I have an aunt in Laguna Beach, so super cool area, by the way. Yeah, uh,
1: I, I think the number one thing that I tell people is, and this comes straight from Robert Kiyosaki, who wrote Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Either you're self-employed, and that means you have a job, or you're a business owner and and it runs itself. And there is a, a transition period of you needing to be self-employed for a period of time okay. where, you know, you get the system, you know, where you get the thing off the ground, you see product market fit, you get enough clients that it can pay for that first employee. And like you said, you fill your capability gap first, what, you know, what you're not great at or what you don't enjoy doing with that person. and And then you build from there and you build the systems, you scale it out to the point where it can run itself without you. One of the things that I'm looking most forward to is because I've essentially checked the box over the last three years that Outcome Partners has been running and, and being self-sufficient at this point, uh, but I enjoy still being a part of the, the, the journey of it and still selling clients and, and, and bringing on board and seeing that first win, that first dollar that they get 100% risk-free with us. You know, For me, that's such a joy. But one of the things that I'm planning to do now is go into micro-acquisition private equity, where... I know now that I can go and boost profitability in 90 days or less or 60 days and less, depending on the industry that we're talking about. So why am I going doing that for somebody else's business when I can go buy that business from them, boost the EBITDA, sit on the business for two to three years, and if it's a cash cow, hold on to it. And if it's not, and somebody else thinks that they can go grow it faster, sell it over to them and, and make the multiple difference now that the EBITDA has grown, right? So I think that that's the next stage of evolution for me, which is saying, okay, great, this was really fun and exciting. But get back to your roots, Jeff. You know, you worked at Lehman Brothers when you were 19. You worked in private equity when you were 20, before you even started at Accenture and moved up the fast track there. How can you get back to buying and holding businesses that cash flow for you? Right. And doing what you love with them. So I think that that's the next step for me. And it comes back down to what your book, the vacation CEO basically said, which was buy something that's operating, fill the gaps where it needs to be filled, but don't let it own you. You be the business owner.
0: Well, also, too, what what I love about you and your, your business model is, you know, your values that, hey, let's fix the problem. Let's cut your expenses and then pay me that most people wouldn't have the courage. Most people don't even have the faith in themselves to do that. Hey, you're going to laugh personal development. There's no coach that would do that. With in my line of business, it's all it's always been pay me the big bucks. i uh, I will get you profitable. Oh shit, I didn't. but thank you for the money if you <laughs> maybe next time and and that's it. but but yours is, I will get you more profit. We will cut costs and then pay me. and and that I
1: love that about you. Yeah. And, and what I love is that because we focus on that, it's allowed me to focus on finding partners, service providers, who are willing to change their business model in order to um, participate in winning deals easier this way, right? So yes, it's a risk up front. But if you already got a great, you know, uh, call it uh, pool of clients right now, you're able to take a little bit more risk this way. And so when I've shown them that, hey, I pre-sold it as this, we've won the deal it's producing this much outcome, which is better for everybody involved, the client, the service provider gets a little bit more than usual. And I get paid, uh, you know, my piece from the service provider, usually. Um, Then then the resulting factor is that, you know, everyone's winning. And uh, now service providers are coming and knocking on my door to say, hey, we'd like to be one of your preferred partners in the mix. Right. And so they show up and say, like, for example, you know, probably a year into Outcome Partners, we had a guy knocking on the door and saying, Hey, we, we heard you save people money on utility bills and their merchant processing, but more importantly, like their shipping and all these other things. Can we come to you because we have this new capability that will cut the cost of cloud service bills. So if you are a startup or a software company using Amazon or uh, or Microsoft Azure, right? So AWS, AWS or Azure, we can help you cut your, your bill by 40 to 70%. Can we work somehow with you where you introduce us to you know your clients and 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 we'll give you a split of the savings that we earn for that, right? So that was kind of a cool thing that's happened about a year in when you really focus in on one thing and you only talk about one thing with clients.
0: Well, it's because it's narrow. A, a lot of people want to, uh, and I, well, I'll say it's like a bodega. They they want to they want to be able to sell everything. They, they want to sell ice cream. They want to do this. They want to do that. That's not the way to create raving fans know your niche do an amazing job at it create raving fans and look you you have you have companies that want to work for you because they they, they see
1: the amazing job that that your company's doing yeah Which i mean i would pretty unheard of these days by the way. well and what i would say is that and you keep simplifying the business that's the other thing that was so meaningful in the last call like 6 months for me Right. So I simplified the business from originally and we still do all these services, but I don't talk about them. But at Outcome Partners, we don't just cut cut costs. We also have outsourced SDRs and sales support teams and virtual assistants and and um, EA. So, you know, if you have somebody who can work over the telephone or over email, we can help you go find a person in 19 different uh, countries, nine different time zones. Right. But I don't really talk about that until a client usually asks me for a referral. And then the third piece is that we also help clients manage cash better, which is a very difficult thing when you're a 5 to $50 million business and you may not have a full-time or even a part-time CFO yet, we can land an entire finance and accounting team as if they were a fractional CFO. So now all of a sudden, you get junior accountants, you get a strategic CFO from your industry, you get a controller in place, and it costs you the same of what you would have been paying a full-time CFO in your business. And so that's things that I don't normally talk about because I had to learn to simplify the conversation I'm having with clients. And more importantly, I told you that we do 24 different ways of cutting costs in a business. But when I talk to a new client today in the last six months, I've only ever brought up two areas, merchant processing and shipping cost reduction. Between those two, that's how I like to usually start with a client. And then we talk about the other 22 services that we can cut costs for them because it's too much for them to take even in, even when you're saying, hey, we can cut costs. That's too broad. Hey, we cut your merchant processing fees, and we can get you money back on your shipping expenses. Does that sound good? Let's get started. We can do that in 30 days or less together. And then now I'm even narrowing further from there in the last two weeks, because we have brought on a few grocery stores, a few grocery chains, and we're realizing that we can really help out the grocery industry. So for example, on the merchant processing side, for one of our clients, we cut their merchant processing in half, their fees in half. And another one they're doing so much volume that we actually brought their fees to zero. Meaning the merchant processing firm was willing to take no revenue on their on their stores because they were doing so much volume it actually helped the pool of risk that merchant processing firms need to manage. And so now it's been a really cool thing that in the last 2 weeks I've taken my prospecting and sales skills and put it strictly into grocery stores and so now we have a 7000 grocery store list in the last 24 hours and I'm really excited start reaching out to uh, those contacts. So I, like I said, I think that just simplifying the business takes it to whole new levels and you really start um, taking as much value as you possibly can from the pools of areas that you really want to play in and you provide the most value in.
0: Now, you you still had me at merchant processing fees. Uh, being being uh, in the QSR's retail for 20 years, oh my God, it, my fees... Were killing me. Uh, that towards the end. Where were you years ago? <laughs> no, you know,
1: no. I think ahead. I think that I think you were dependent on. And again, this is the benefit. I think we were talking earlier about some of the benefits of COVID. Is it forced a lot of people who were local service providers, like in the merchant processing renegotiation space, to go digital, right? If they wanted to survive and thrive. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think that 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 definitely is one of the benefits is now you're hearing about me because we wouldn't have met if, if the world didn't go digital.
0: You, you see, everything happens for a reason. Now, what, what's the, can small businesses use you or is it just big, big corporations? The, Cause you, you mentioned grocery stores. Clearly that, that, that's, you know Schwagmans and all these places. Are- no, it's
1: actually the local yeah. one store location. We can actually help out a lot. Okay. Um, what what I would simply say is that when we talk to e commerce brands or retailers, um, if you are doing any shipping whatsoever uh, on the major carriers, UPS, FedEx, DHL, reach out to me. We have no minimum for taking a look there and putting at least what we call insurance on your shipments, meaning that if there is a um, overcharge, uh, on your account on a per package basis. We have a, um, software that basically finds 40 different ways to get you refunds, uh, on any particular overcharges. So that could be that, you know, your package, when it was being delivered, went through a residential area. And so they threw something called a residential surcharge fee onto it. They shouldn't be doing that. And so are you going to spend 90 minutes on the phone getting a 67 cent refund? Probably not, but our software will do it all for you and show you with screenshots the whole process all the way through until it lands in your account. And then seven days later, we just charge your credit card uh, for 50% or uh, a smaller percent, depending on if you're doing other things with us. We, we like to give discounts to folks who work with us. Um, so that's the shipping refund side is that we have no minimum there. From a merchant processing perspective, this is, this is where you start getting into the world of Volume and frequency. So you need to be doing at least usually $1.2 million per year in merchant processing to switch to a provider and actually see a significant amount of savings that was worth the effort for you. Um, At about 3 million and higher is when we can actually start renegotiating with your existing service provider. So this is this is what 95% of my clients do, which is a very unique thing that we do that most don't. When you're gonna be talking to people who say that they can save you money on merchant processing. What they basically do is they want you just to switch over to their merchant processor, right? And so they're willing to do whatever they can to discount their own merchant processor just to win your business. Because for them, a penny is a penny, right? Uh Coming through. But for 95% of our clients that are doing over $3 million a year with their merchant processor, we actually will come in and just renegotiate with the existing vendor. So we will say, hey, basically we ran this RFP process. We have four other providers that are willing to win the business for a significant amount of savings at least match the best one in there. And we'll keep this client with you guys, right? And then the way that we collect our fees in that type of a situation, if we're not switching you to a vendor that is a preferred vendor, but we're keeping you on yours, is that you just pay us a percentage of the savings, the arbitrage that you were previously paying and what you're now paying for two to three years. And then we go away and you keep 100% of the savings. And so that's how my business model works with most of the ways that we renegotiate bills for our clients. Did that did that all make sense
0: to me it did, but I wouldn't have been able to use you because I would have been handcuffed on uh, I, I only own franchises and you know the the data merchant and a lot of times in in the world of franchising the reason why there's fat is because the franchisor gets kickbacks so absolutely. <laughs> you know
1: but you do you do have some certain freedoms so i would say that we do work with large and small groups like franchise owners with like five guys restaurants Brett a um, mcdonalds burger king so these are definitely groups carl's junior so you know in the qsr space these are some of our clients that own 5 10 15 or more of these locations some cases hundreds of these locations and we were able to come in and help them out because you start having some negotiating power with the franchisor as well when you become large enough, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, so at the end of the day, all I simply tell people is, what is, what is a 30-minute conversation going to kill you? You know, Send us last month's invoice. We'll tell you if you could save money or not. And if you, do, if you can't save money with us, let's say that we can't find any savings, now you know that you're doing really well. You're competitive in the market and you don't have to look at this for the next two or three years, right? As you continue growing.
0: Well, in order to grow, one of the things that you do have to do is you have to watch expenses. Because I, I I know plenty of entrepreneurs that that think you know the, a booming economy who cares about cutting costs and until they hit the proverbial iceberg. and sometimes it's too late. It's like, well, you should have absolutely cut in costs.
1: And that's and that's what's going on right now in the venture capital world, right? Like all these venture capitalists were like, no, we're giving you money to grow, 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 hire staff, you know, go after the market. And now they're saying, "Oh, by the way, we're not going to give you any capital, and because we're sitting on your board and we own another another you know few seats, turn all of your attention to figuring out how to become profitable, right?" And so, like all of a sudden, your entire roadmap for the next three years, which was grow, 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 that's where you were going to spend all that capital, and you were just going to keep raising money, is now being told to redirect it in a completely different frame of mind, which is go build an actual business. True. Now,
0: Jeff, how do prospective business owners, entrepreneurs, mid sized companies, how do they find out
1: your company outcome partners to see if if it isn't? So I'm happy to have a conversation with anybody who flows through your network, which would be through this podcast. So they can always send me an email at jeff at thinkoutcome.com, one word, so T H I dot com. Uh, they can also go to thinkoutcome.com, the website, and just fill out the form for them to reach out to me. It goes directly into my inbox. And I'll respond back to them as long as they're not trying to sell me something if these are really people who are trying to work with us. And I'm happy to have a 30 to 60-minute conversation just to hear about their business, learn about some of their challenges or some of the opportunities in front of them and see if we can help them on that journey.
0: Now, do you have any words of wisdom for the entrepreneur out there that why why you or maybe those that are still wondering about life or risk adverse, whether it's corona or the next pandemic, or just anybody that that's just fearful, just to
1: get them yep. off the sidelines and to live life. I mean, clearly you're living life to the fullest. So I would, I would say that I'm probably the most risk adverse person that you'll meet. You know, I, I live my life between 5 30 and 9 p.m. because I want to avoid riffraff in my life. Um, you know, so, you know, I'm not going out to the late night parties and clubs and, you know, here in Medellin and you guys can all Google, you know, the fun that that is. So I'm, I'm losing out on that fun because of my risk adverseness. But, um, you know, the, the number one thing that I would say when it comes to business, and maybe I'll categorize this, categorize this in, in the three areas that I live my life, which is wealth, health and relationships. Um, you know, and you have to take risks in every single one of these to live life to its fullest, but it should be measured on what your level of risk taking is. So from a business perspective, I never started a business where I didn't collect the cash upfront for the idea. And I think that that's really important for most people to understand because they may have an idea for an app or for uh, a restaurant or something like that. And what I would simply say is if you can't collect cash in the bank account for the business idea that you have before you have to go build anything out, meaning invest in the infrastructure or invest in the platform or the technology or the restaurant's location, figure out the unique creative way where you can collect the cash upfront. Otherwise, don't go do that business. I just don't think that it's, that it's worth going and doing. Because if you can't collect cash upfront, then you don't know how to sell. And sales is 90% of the challenge of most new business owners. Uh, For any of your business owners who are a little bit more mature, I would simply say uh, that the best thing I can offer them in this short period of time is to read a book called Scaling Up by Vern Harnesh. So if you already have a business in place and you want to figure out the um, people, strategy, execution, and cash flow capabilities to go double that business that you're already running today, I think that that is a great book with really tactical ways to to um, go after cost opportunities, cost savings opportunities, but also growth opportunities for the business. It's very similar to traction that is all, you know, about entrepreneurial operating systems. Uh, so again, that book was Scaling Up. When it comes to health, I would say that the risk that uh, risk taking around health is, for me, uh, many Americans are, are under this belief that, you know, going to the gym and working out is a bad thing. And I, I fell victim to that for a long time. I would say that nothing has helped me become more wealthy and and have more time freedom and location freedom than getting my health in check. And while I still consider myself a fat kid, I'm in the gym for six plus months now every single day versus just a couple of times a week. So every day I'm in the gym and I just feel healthier. I'm bringing that energy into phone calls like this, into everyday relationships in my life. And so I think that that is something worth taking the risk on is just be the person who just shows up in the gym. Even if you don't work out, stick on your shoes and go to a gym. I bet you if you show up, you'll end up on a tread, you know, on a treadmill walking for at least five minutes. And from there, you know, the the world is your horizon because you're getting the endorphins into your system. You're getting the catalyst of just living a happier day that, you know, in, in your life. The last thing is around relationships. And I think that it's, I look at it from a risk taking of you're in a relationship or you're not in a relationship. If you're not in a relationship and I needed this healthy reminder from my group of guys, right? My, my core group. Um, and they reminded me that Jeff, dating, if you're not in a relationship right now, is like a sales pipeline. You got to fill it in, and it has to be full at all times so you can qualify the leads. And so one of my friends down here, I was always coming up with the excuse that even though I learned enough Spanish with my ex-girlfriend, who's a paisa, she's a, she's a Medellin girl, I learned Spanish in a six-month relationship from her from saying hola to everybody to, you know, lo siento por mi malo espanol. You know, there's very little accent. You know, p- people understand at least, you know, when I'm coming in. But the number one thing is, you know, when you're not in a relationship, you got to fill your pipeline. So the guys basically said, Hey, Jeff, it doesn't matter if your Spanish is is okay, or great or terrible, get out to the mall and just meet 20 new girls a day. And so that's been the the thing I've been doing since I broke up. And that's the risk taking that I take in my life, no matter where I'm in the world, whether I'm going to be in Thailand, or here in Medellin, Colombia, or I'm going to be in Ukraine when it gets rebuilt, you know, I'm going to go out there and fill my pipeline if I'm a single guy. Uh, If you're in a relationship, the number one thing that I would tell folks to do, uh, especially men in the group, is uh, listen to a book by a gentleman named Corey Wayne, and it's How to Be a 3% Man. Um, I think it's one of the best relationship books out there. And it basically reminds men not only to be mysterious and confident like James Bond, but how to do it and even how to do it in a relationship. So, how to maintain that mystery, how to remain that, you know, to, to keep that confidence going. Because we get, we all fall victim of just it's easy now that I've got a wife or I've got a girlfriend of a long period of time. But to keep them and keep them interested and keep them, you know, unsure around you, which is a lot of where the attraction builds in the relationship, you, you have to remain James Bond in the relationship. So that's a that's the risk taking that I would simply say for most folks. So I don't know if I went beyond what you were hoping for, but I think that's a good No, no, I, I love the answer.
0: I, I love the answer. I, I'm, I'll i will trust me, I I always take notes. Uh after so no uh i completely loved it man thank you for the time thank you for the hour you see that we, we covered everything a little bit a little political a little social you know capitalism 101 you know be diverse entertaining it was engaging it was informative and you know we learned a lot about your company i mean when when i do go back because i'm once an entrepreneur always an entrepreneur it's always it's only just a pause outcome
1: partners will definitely be on the speed dial i love it thank you so much for having me on and i really appreciate the invite this was great as my very first podcast experience they, they say you always remember your first jeff
0: so <laughs> <laughs> thanks brother